My name is Fernanda Moura. I am a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 22 of the podcast, An Overview of English Literature. This episode is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published book, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to remind you to check out the website, booksandculture.club, and sign up for the newsletter. Books and Culture is an online platform where I offer online literature courses, such as the Creative Reader Academy and Introduction to Literary Studies. And I have great news. The registration for the theme course, the Jane Austen Club, opens on Monday, 27th of March. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you can follow it at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. And you can get a 10% discount if you register for the course in the first 24 hours. You can register via the website booksandculture.club. You can also follow me on Instagram at books dot end dot culture so you will be notified of upcoming online literature courses so now let's talk about today's episode this is the third session of the guided reading of jane austen's sense and sensibility i host these sessions live at the books and culture youtube channel every thursday at 1 p.m central european time i go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this project to the podcast, An Overview of English Literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen's Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time. And if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents. So I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoyed this format. I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with this third session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. And I decided to open today's session with a quote from Jane Austen. Um, it's a quote from another one of her books, um, Northanger Abbey. But I think we can also apply this quote for what we're going to be discussing today. Um, so take a look at this quote. When a young lady is to be a heroine, the, the perverseness of 40 surrounding families cannot prevent her. Something must and will happen to throw a hero in her way. This is, of course, about the protagonist of Northanger Abbey, Catherine Moreland. But I think we can very well use this same quote, quote to refer to one of the protagonists of Sense and Sensibility. Any ideas on who that 
could be. I think it will become clearer after we discuss chapters six, seven, eight, and nine, which are the chapters um, for today's session. And I would also like to give you a recommendation, a book recommendation. So it's something I've been reading lately. And if you are interested in Jane Austen's life, um, there are so many biographies out there, right? But I really, I've been really enjoying reading this one, Jane Austen, A Life by Claire Tomalin. She has written biographies of so many uh, 19th century writers, also Charles Dickens, Thomas Hardy. She has such a wide knowledge of the period, the literary production of the time. So if you're interested, I would recommend this book, Jane Austen, A Life. So today we're going to talk about chapters six, seven, eight, and nine. Last week, we discussed chapters two, three, four, and five. And some of the things we discussed were um, Jane's ironic tone, and that is one of the pleasures of reading Jane Austen. The narrator's voice is so sarcastic, and we're going to see more examples of that today. Um, we also talked about how uh, Jane Austen, as a writer, uses the strategy, the technique, let's say, of changing perspectives, changing points of view. Um, so at times we're reading the story through, let's say, Marianne's perspective. At other times, then we jump into another character's point of view, and that changes how um, she uses language. So the language use is, uh, let's say, mirrors the character's personality. We talked about Mrs. Joan Dashwood's invasion and domination of Norland Park, how she came and thought herself um, as the rightful mistress of the place, which according to the law she was. Um, and she completely uh, neglected um, Mrs. Dashwood, the mother of uh, the girls, Eleanor, Marianne, and Margaret. Um, so the role of Mrs. John Dashwood in the future of the Dashwood girls, um, introduction of new characters, including uh, Eleanor's love interest, who is Edward Ferris, Mrs. John Dashwood's brother, but how that um, relationship is not accepted by um, his sister or his mother because he they want him um, to be ambitious and to grow uh, in life and marrying a simple girl um, with no property of her own, no inheritance, no big inheritance like Eleanor um, would not be a good thing for uh, Edward's future, according to them. We also read about the different perceptions on love, feelings, and demonstration of feelings by Marianne and Eleanor, and how that um, refers back to the title chosen by Jane Austen. So, sense and sensibility. One of the sisters, Eleanor, is the embodiment of sense. So, she's restrained, she uh, restricts her feelings, she does not let it show. She keeps it all to herself, and at some point, eventually, of course, that has to explode. We're going to uh, follow that. On the other hand, um, Marianne is the sister that embodies 
um, sensibility. So exaggeration of feelings, emotion, um, youth, vigor, energy. That's all uh, what she represents and what she wants to find in love. So she wants to find someone who is exactly like her. But that is, of course, a very idealistic perception and perhaps she's going to she's going to be challenged on that throughout her journey in sense and sensibility and we finished with the sad and melancholy depart from norland to a new place barton cottage where the girls with her with their mother will have to start a new life simpler life remember norland park was huge estate beautiful grounds, and now they're moving to a cottage. Um, so they're going to have to change their lifestyle and the company. They're going to start a new life. And we'll see how that plays out. Excellent. So let's start with chapter uh, six. And by the way, the quote I read before, um, the quote from Northanger Abbey about Catherine Moreland and how a heroine um, in search of romance cannot be detained by any family even if it's 40 families uh, the perseverance of 40 families she will find a hero in her path and that's what Marianne wants right we'll see how she uh, goes on her uh, own journey of love and self-discovery remember she's only 17 years old so she's very young she she will mature a lot throughout this book so let's start with chapter 16 um if you're watching it live let me know if you've read it before or if you want to read it with me so we read it along and don't forget to add your comments to the chat so we can um, have a conversation it's really interesting um and that's one of the best things about having, of being part of a literary community like this one, Books and Culture, is that you can talk about your readings, about your thoughts, compare and contrast uh, ideas, interpretations. So let's get started with chapter six. Um, so they're on the way to um, Barton Cottage. The first part of their journey was performed in too melancholy a dis disposition to be otherwise than tedious and unpleasant. But as they drew towards the end of it, their interest in the appearance of a country which they were to inhabit overcame their dejection, and the view of Barton Valley as they entered it gave them cheerfulness. It was a pleasant fertile spot, well wooded and rich in pasture. After winding along it for more than a mile, they reached their own house. A small green court was the whole of its domain in front, and the neat wicked gate admitted them into it. So they're going into the countryside. And as a curiosity, this is a part of the English countryside that Jane Austen was familiar with herself. Um, she spent the summers of 1802 and 1804 in Devonshire, so she would be familiar with this landscape, <laughs> which is quite interesting to know. Remember that people at the time, the beginning of the 19th century, was very difficult for them to travel. First of all, it, was, it would take a long time, right? You would have to travel um, in a carriage, uh, 
there were railways already, but in the countryside you would have to either walk or go on horseback or in a carriage. So <clears throat> imagine how much time that would take and energy uh, and to travel abroad then was something even more complicated, right? So um, it is an adventure for them to go beyond their bubble at Norland and to explore the world, the world meaning explore uh, a little bit more of their world at the time. So they reached the destination. As a house, Barton Cottage, though small, was comfortable and compact. But as a cottage, it was defective, for the building was regular, the roof was tiled, the window shutters were not painted green, nor were the walls covered with honeysuckles. A narrow passage led directly through the house into the garden behind. On each side of the entrance was a sitting room about 16 feet square, and beyond them were the offices and the stairs. Four bedrooms and two garrets formed the rest of the house. It had not been built many years and was in good repair. In comparison of Norland, it was poor and small indeed, but the tears which recollection called forth as they entered the house were soon dried away. They were cheered by the joy of the servants on their arrival and each for the sake of the others resolved to appear happy. It was very early in September. The season was fine and from first seeing the place under the advantage of good weather, they received an impression in its favor, which was of material service in recommending it to their lasting approbation. I think it's interesting that the narrator says, as a house, it worked very well, but as a cottage, it was defective. Because cottage, um, well, and this could be, I would say, pretty much Marianne's perspective, a romantic, idealized image of a cottage painted green and with honeysuckles uh where is it uh, previous page covered in the walls covered with honeysuckles like um a place of a romantic uh, countryside novel that was not the case the, the cottage uh, was regular uh, the windows were not painted green and the walls were not covered in uh, uh, with honeysuckles. So it was an ordinary place, nothing like a fairy tale or a romance um, location. The situation of the house was good. High hills rose immediately behind and at no great distance on each side, some of which were open downs, the others cultivated and woody. The village of Barton was chiefly on one of these hills and formed a pleasant view from the cottage windows. The prospect in front was more extensive. It commanded the whole of the valley and reached into the country beyond. The hills which surrounded the cottage terminated the valley in that direction. Under another name and in another course, it branched out again between two of the steepest of them. You see how they um, appreciate nature. Nature and nature appreciation is a very uh, well connected with um, the picturesque and the romantic movement. So um, a reaction to modernity and a reaction to the, to the Industrial Revolution and a reconnection with simpler ways of life, with nature. And 
a wild nature. So being free at liberty. And we'll see that in, in the different ways in which Eleanor and Marianne enjoy nature. So Marianne is a free spirit. She loves to run wild. She loves to run uh, down the hills. Uh, she likes to experience this picturesque. Uh, whereas Eleanor is more contained, she actually prefers to stay indoors than outside. So nature surrounding them is very important. Um, with the size and furniture of the house, Mrs. Dashwood was upon the whole well satisfied, for though her former style of life rendered many additions to the letter indispensable, yet to add and improve was a delight to her, and she had at this time ready money enough to supply all that was wanted of greater elegance to the apartments. As for the house itself, to be sure, said she, it is too small for our family, but we will make ourselves tolerably comfortable for the present, as it is too late in the year for improvements. Perhaps in the spring, if I have plenty of money, as I dare say I will, we may think about building. These parlors are both too small for such parties of our friends as I hope to see often collected here. And I have some thoughts of throwing the passage into one of them with perhaps a part of the other, and so leave the remainder of that other for an entrance. This, with a new drawing room, which may be easily added, and a bedchamber and garret above, will make it a very snug little cottage. I could wish the stairs were handsome, but one must not expect everything, though I suppose it would be no difficult matter to widen them. I shall see how much I am beforehand with the world in the spring, and we will plan our improvements accordingly. Remember how Mrs. Dashwood is very naive about money. So she thinks she will have enough money to do all these changes, and it will be pleasant. And um, she says, if I have plenty of money, as I dare say, I will. So she's very optimistic, and it's great. She brings this optimistic, hopeful um, atmosphere to the house. But uh, the reality is that they don't have much money. <clears throat> so that was Mrs. Dashwood speaking. Look at now the next paragraph, how the narrator, the narrator's voice judges this hopefulness and naivete, financial naivete uh, by Mrs. Dashwood. Look at that. In the meantime, till all these alterations could be made from the savings of an income of 500 a year by a woman who never saved in her life, they were wise enough to be contented with the house as it was, and each of them was busy in arranging their particular concerns and endeavoring by placing around them their books and other possessions to form themselves a home. Marianne's pianoforte was unpacked and properly disposed of, and Eleanor's drawings were affixed to the walls of their sitting room. By a woman who never saved in her life. That's the narrator's voice. You see the contrast. Another thing I would like to bring your attention to is um, how Eleanor and Marianne engage differently with art. So Marianne is all about music. And music is passion, is, um, let's say, a more extrovert activity, whereas Eleanor prefers drawing, which is an individual practice. There's no audience. Um, 
it's more of a solitary pleasure, more introvert than uh, Marianne's music. Now, let's continue. In such employments as these, they were interrupted soon after breakfast the next day by the entrance of their landlord, who called to welcome them to Barton and to offer them every accommodation from his house and garden in which theirs might at present be deficient. Sir John Middleton, new character, the landlord. Sir John Middleton was a good-looking man about 40. He had formerly visited at Stanhill, but it was too long ago for his young cousins to remember him. His countenance was thoroughly good-humored, and his manners were as friendly as the style of his letter. Their arrival seemed to afford him real satisfaction and their comfort to be an object of real solicitude to him. He said much of his earnest desire of their living in the most sociable terms with his family and pressed them so cordially to dine at Barton Park every day till they were better settled at home that though his entreaties were carried to a point of perseverance beyond civility, they could not give offense. His kindness was not confined to words, for within an hour after he left them, a large basket full of garden stuff and fruit arrived from the park, which was followed before the end of the day by a present of game. He insisted, moreover, on conveying all their letters to and from, and from the post for them, and would not be denied the satisfaction of sending them his newspaper every day. Um, so remember how the... Um, how I said that the use of language changes according to the um, personality of the character. So Sir John Middleton, look at the words that the narrator uses to describe him. Good-humored, friendly, comfort, solicitude, sociable, kindness. So he's a good man. You can sense that from the use of words. And um, his solicitude is felt right away because he... Um, insists that um, he or his servants, yeah, right, not himself, his servants would convey their letters to and from the post and that he would send them their newspaper every day. There's an interesting note here on page 4046 that says a lot about their financial situation just um, by mentioning the post and the letters. So um, this is what the note says. This is kindly meant by Sir John, of course, but somewhat intrusive, as his character tends to be. Um, in London, letters were delivered to the house, but in the country, if the recipient lived outside the area of the post town, they had to be fetched from the post, frequently a public inn, which is where the Austins received their mail at the wheat sheaf located two miles from their home in Steventon. Barton Village... The likely location of the post for the Dashwoods is only a mile away. So in the countryside, the mail would not arrive at their house. They would have to send them to bring them, bring the post to the post location, which is was usually an inn, and would have to go there to fetch the correspondence. It would not um, come to your house directly. So that's an interesting historical information. And sending them his newspaper was a common practice, the sharing of newspapers and journals because of their relatively high cost. Sir John's generosity is also a reminder of the Dashwood women's limited income. So um, he means well, but he knows that they are in a lower 
social and financial situation than himself. So he uses that kindness to help them financially, even if not so overtly. So by um, lending his servants, by sending them the newspaper. Now, in contrast to Sir John Middleton, this nice man, there's Lady Middleton, his wife. Let's see the difference. Lady Middleton had sent a very civil message by him, denoting her intention of waiting on Mrs. Dashwood as soon as she could be assured that her visit would be no inconvenience. And as this message was answered by an invitation equally polite, her ladyship was introduced to them the next day. They were, of course, very anxious to see a person on whom so much of their comfort at Barton must depend. And the elegance of her appearance was favorable to their wishes. Lady Middleton was not more than six or seven and twenty. They were very young, right? He was only 40 and she was 27. But for the time, they were already middle-aged. Um, her face was handsome, her figure tall and striking, and her address graceful. Her manners had all the elegance which her husband's wanted, but they would have been improved by some share of his frankness and warmth. And her visit was long enough to detract something from their first admiration by showing that, though perfectly well-bred, she was reserved, cold, and had nothing to say for herself beyond the most commonplace inquiry or remark. Look at the words that the narrator uses to describe her and how they contrast with the words used to describe John Middleton. So she's described as handsome, tall, striking, graceful, elegant, reserved, cold, and perfectly well-bred. So big contrast. And now let's see the last two the last two paragraphs of this chapter chapter and let's enjoy together the witty <coughs> the witty language of the narrator. Conversation, however, was not wanted, for Sir John was very chatty, and Lady Middleton had taken the wise precaution of bringing with her their eldest child, a fine little boy about six years old, by which means there was no by which means there was one subject always to be recurred to by the ladies in case of extremity, for they had to inquire his name and age, admire his beauty, and ask him questions which his mother answered for him, while he hung about her and held down his head, to the great surprise of her ladyship, who wondered at his being so shy before a company as he could make noise enough at home. <coughs> On every formal visit, a child ought to be of the party by way of provision for discourse. In the present case, it took up 10 minutes to determine whether the boy were most like his father or mother and in what particular he resembled either. For, of course, everybody deferred and everybody was astonished at the opinion of the others. <laughs> what do you think of this comment by the narrator? <coughs> Let me know while I recover. So Lady Middleton was afraid that they would run out of conversation or run out of things to say. So she brought her kid with her. So, you know, they were safe because if 
Yeah, Gabriela says it was excuse to talk. So they couldn't go into deep conversation. They didn't have to because, you know, if they ran out of things to say a child, you know, you can always talk about how they look like their father or their mother, what they can do, age, name, admire his beauty. Um, uh, so that's quite funny. An opportunity was soon to be given to the Dashwoods of debating on the rest of the children as Sir John would not leave the house without securing their promise of dining at the park the next day. And this is the end of chapter six. So you see how Jane Austen explores social relations and social conventions, like in this paragraph in which she talks about how Lady um, Middleton brings her child um, and how it's conventional then, if there is a child, to ask about the child, to... Um, uh, talk about um, the other children to debate on the rest of the children. Um, so she likes to explore, to put the social relations under the microscope, which is quite, quite interesting. And for us, 21st century readers, it's very interesting to take, a, uh, to have a glimpse at what life and relationships were in the beginning of the 19th century. So in this chapter, the girls with their mother make or try to make Bar Barton Cottage their home. They bring their things. They start the same kind of activities such as reading, playing the piano, um, drawing. And there is the introduction of new characters. In this case, the landlord, Sir John Middleton and her lady Middleton. <clears throat> so this was more of... Um, Descriptive, cha descriptive chapter, we'll see how Jane Austen kind of, she has chapters that are more descriptive, like this one, especially when it, she needs to introduce a new place, like Barton Cottage, or new characters, such as Sir and Lady Middleton, and other chapters, which, in my view, are more interesting, they are dialogue chapters, so conversational chapters, like the one we read last week in which um, Marianne and Eleanor talk about Edward Ferris, which is quite funny. All right, so let's move on to chapter seven. <clears throat> and let me know in the comments um, if you have any questions or, or comments. Now, Barton Park so Barton Cottage is where they were staying. Barton Park was the main estate, so the big house. <clears throat> Barton Park was about half a mile from the cottage. The ladies had passed near it in their way along the valley, but it was screened from their view at home by the projection of a hill. The house was large and handsome, and the Middletons lived in a style of equal hospitality, hospitality and elegance. The former hospitality, was for Sir John's gratification, the latter, elegance, for that of his lady. They were scarcely ever without some friends staying with them in the house, and they kept more company of every kind than any other family in the neighborhood. It was necessary to the happiness of both, for however dissimilant in temper and outward behavior, they strongly resembled each other in that total want of talent and taste which confined their employments, unconnected with such as society produced, within a very narrow compass. Sir John was a sportsman, Lady Middleton a mother. 
So they lacked taste, they lacked um, talent, um, and they were defined as this. He, Sir John Middleton, was a sportsman, and she was a mother, and that's, that's it. So a shallow personality. Um, he hunted and shot, and she humored her children, and these were their only resources. Lady Middleton had the advantage of being able to spoil her children all the year round, while Sir John's independent employments were in existence only half the time. <laughs> That's quite funny. Another uh, uh, example of the voice of the narrator here judging the characters. So Lady Middleton could spoil her children all year long, but Sir John, poor man, he could only hunt, do his only talent only half the year, only during the hunting season. Continual engagements at home and abroad, however, supplied all the deficiencies of nature and education, supported the good spirits of Sir John, and gave exercise to the good breeding of his wife. Lady Middleton piqued herself upon the elegance of her table and of all her domestic arrangements, and from this kind of vanity was her greatest enjoyment in any of their parties. But Sir John's satisfaction in society was much more real. He delighted in collecting about him more young people than his house would hold, and the noisier they were, the better was he pleased. He was a blessing to all the juvenile part of the neighborhood, for in summer he was forever forming parties to eat cold ham and chicken out of doors, and in winter his private balls were numerous enough for any young lady who was not suffering under the insatiable appetite of fifteen. Now a girl of fifteen would not find enjoyment in Barton Park any any season, in summer or winter, because she needed more, right? So she would have to go to London or somewhere where um, with more people and more entertainment options. But for others who are not at this insatiable age, that would do. The arrival of a new family in the country was always a matter of joy to him. And in every point of view, he was charmed with the inhabitants he had now procured for his cottage at Barton. The Miss Dashwoods were young, pretty, and unaffected. It was enough to secure his good opinion. For to be unaffected was all that a pretty girl could want to make her mind as captivating as her person. The friendliness of his disposition made him happy in accommodating those whose situation might be considered, in comparison with the past, as unfortunate. In showing kindness to his cousins, therefore, he had the real satisfaction of a good heart, and in settling a family of females only in his cottage, he had all the satisfaction of a sportsman, for a sportsman, though he esteems only those of his sex who are sportsmen, like, sportsmen likewise, is not often desirous of encouraging their taste by admitting them to a residence within his own manner. Mrs. Dashwood and her daughters were met at the door of the house by Sir John, who welcomed them to Barton Park with unaffected sincerity. And as he attended them to the drawing room, repeated to the young ladies the concern which the same subject had drawn from him the day before at being unable to get any smart young man to meet them. They would see, he said, only one gentleman there besides them, besides himself. A particular friend who was staying at the park, but who was neither very young nor very gay. He hoped they would all excuse the smallness of the party and could assure them it should never happen again. He had been 
to several families that morning in hopes of procuring some addition to their number, but it was moonlight and everybody was full of engagements. Luckily, Lady Middleton's mother had arrived at Barton within the last hour, and as she was a very cheerful, agreeable woman, he hoped the young ladies would not find it so very dull as they might imagine. The young ladies, as well as their mother, were perfectly satisfied with having two entire strangers of the party and wished for no more. So you see that being entertaining to your guests, especially if you were um, the owner of a big property like Barton Park, it was your duty, your social duty to entertain the others. Um, so that might be one of the reasons why Sir John invited Dashwoods to stay at the cottage. Yes, he wanted to do something nice for them, but it would also bring him joy and it would be easier for him to, uh, let's say, fulfill this social duty of entertainment. Another interesting note here is that he says that it was moonlight, so people had other things to do. But we modern contemporary readers might think, but what, what about it? Why is it important that it was a moonlight evening? Let's take a look here. Um, an important addition to artificial light for walking or driving at night. For example, in Northanger Abbey, the ill-fated Thorpe Moreland expedition to Bristol had a delightful drive back, only the moon was not up and it rained a little. So we take it for granted because electricity is part of our lives. We take it for granted that it's always been there. But of course, we have to think that their lifestyle in the beginning of the 19th century was different. So they had to adjust to certain things that they lacked, such as light. So when there was a moonlight evening, they would take the advantage to walk outside because it was then they had extra light and they could enjoy doing uh, things like walking outside in the evening that they couldn't in other nights. So that's one of the reasons why it was so difficult to find others to dine with them on this sp special evening. That's quite interesting, right? Uh, so let's continue. Now, there is another character to be introduced, um, Mrs. Jennings, who is the mother of Lady Middleton. Mrs. Jennings, Lady Middleton's mother, was a good-humoured, merry, fat, elderly woman who talked a great deal, seemed very happy and rather vulgar. She was full of jokes and laughter, and before dinner was over, had said many witty things on the subject of lovers and husbands, hoped they had not left their hearts behind them in Sussex, and pretended to see them blush, whether they did or not. Marianne was vexed at it for her sister's sake, and turned her eyes towards Eleanor to see how she bore these attacks, with an earnestness which gave Eleanor far more pain than could arise from such commonplace raillery as Mrs. Jennings. Colonel Brandon, the friend of Sir John, so that's the other guest who was there, seemed no more adapted by a resemblance of manner to be his friend than Lady Middleton was to be his wife, or Mrs. Jennings to be Lady Middleton's mother. He was silent and grave. His appearance, however, was not unpleasing in spite of his being, in the opinion of Marianne and Margaret, an absolute old bachelor, for he was on the wrong size of five and thirty, 
For though his face was not handsome, his countenance was sensible and his address was particularly gentlemanlike. So for Marianne and Margaret, the two younger ones, Colonel Brandon was such an old man at the age of the wrong side of 35. So he was between 35 and 40. But for them, that was like such a huge age gap. So Marianne was 17. I believe Margaret was 15 or 14, something like that. So like 20 years would be a huge gap for them. And it's quite funny to see how they look at him as such, this such old man. There was nothing in any of the party which could recommend them as companions to the Dashwoods. But the cold insipidity of Lady Middleton was so particularly repulsive that in comparison of it, the gravity of Colonel Brandon and even the boisterous mirth of Sir John and his mother-in-law was interesting. Lady Middleton seemed to be roused to enjoyment only by the entrance of her four noisy children after dinner, who pulled her about, tore her clothes, and put an end to every kind of discourse except what related to themselves. In the evening, as Marianne was discovered to be musical, she was invited to play. The instrument was unlocked, everybody prepared to be charmed, and Marianne, who sang very well at their request, went through the chief of the songs which Lady Middleton had brought into the family on her marriage, and which perhaps had lain ever since in the same position on the pianoforte, for her ladyship had celebrated that event by giving up music although by her mother's account she had played extremely well and by her own was very fond of it. Now, I love this sarcasm here. It's very subtle, but the narrator says her ladyship had celebrated that event, meaning marriage, by giving up music altogether. So, you know, she has accomplished her goal in life. She got married so she can, you know, stop with all the rest. She doesn't need to keep pl uh, playing anymore. She doesn't need to learn how to be an accomplished lady because she got her objective. This is the criticism in the narrator's voice. Can you feel that sarcasm? And there is an interesting note here. Um, giving up music, yes. A common satire directed at women who had achieved their goal of marriage. Another example, Mrs. Elton in Emma cites many women of her acquaintance, herself included, who have given up music after marriage. More than I can enumerate, it is enough to put one in a fright. So they just stopped being themselves or trying to be someone else, in fact, you know, because you had to be such an accomplished lady to secure a good match. You had to be able to draw, to dance, to sing, to play. So when you... <laughs> Finally got married, you could relax and do only the things you enjoyed, perhaps. Um, another thing that we usually take for granted, 21st century readers, is music, right? We listen to music all the time. We turn on the radio, we, I don't know, um, we can listen to the song we want anytime. But in the early 19th century, for them to be able to listen to music, they would need to play an instrument, or to have someone in the house who played and sang. And it was limited to these songs that this person knew, right? So, of course, they appreciated music even more because it was a rare event. It was not available, readily available as it is now. But it's interesting to think about it, right? So it's important to put this, um, let's say, 
small details into context, such as the moonlight walk, listening to music, um, uh, being an accomplished lady, etc. Now, Marianne's performance was highly applauded. Sir John was loud in his admiration at the end of every song and as loud in his conversation with the others while every song lasted. Lady Middleton frequently called him to order, wondered how anyone's attention could be diverted from music for a moment, and asked Marianne to sing a particular song which Marianne had just finished. Out. <laughs> Sarcasm by the narrator. Colonel Brandon alone, of all the party, heard her without being in raptures. He paid her only the compliment of attention, and she felt a respect for him on the occasion, which the others had reasonably forfeited by their shameless want of taste. His pleasure in music, though it amounted not to that ecstatic delight which alone could sympathize with her own, was estimable when contrasted against that horrible insensibility of the others. And she was reasonable enough to allow that a man of five and thirty might well have outlived all acuteness of feeling and every exquisite power of enjoyment. She was perfectly disposed to make every allowance for the colonel's advanced state of life, which humanity required. Now, what do you think of Marianne's perception of old age? Now, how she sees Colonel Brandon as this man in an advanced state of life who had already outlived all acuteness of feeling and every exquisite power of enjoyment. He was beyond, you know youth and life and energy so he was just surviving in her in her mind right what do you think of that curious to know this is the end of chapter seven so we are introduced to more characters um um Lady Middleton's mother, Mrs. Jennings, and Colonel Brandon. And we also see the connection of Marianne with music and how she wants someone to be exactly like her, someone that has an ecstatic delight of music. Gabriela says, like she thinks he lived his life and nothing interesting is going for him anymore. Exactly. That's how she feels. She's 17 years old. That's how she feels that life is then that point where she's living and he has already outlived that period. Um, it is quite interesting and funny as well. Jenny says, such a difference to what age we think of as old these days. Yes, Marian is uh, even exaggerating, right? We'll see in the next chapter how her mother and Eleanor think differently. Um, but yes. For us, 35 years old is a young person, right? I'm 32. I consider myself not an ancient person in such an advanced state of life. No, not at all. But at that time, yes, age perception was different. So we have to put that into context as well. Uh, so people do not live as long as we live today. So if they live, I'm, I'm not sure now, but let's say till 50, 60. So 30 is really like middle age and past 30, you're already past your mid, mid, middle of your life. So you've lived most of your life already. Um, so let's take a look at chapter eight, which is more of a dialogue chapter. 
not a description chapter as chapters six and seven. Let's see. Mrs. Jennings, we're going to get to her, we're going to get to know her more in this chapter and let me know how you feel about this character, Mrs. Jennings. Mrs. Jennings was a widow with an ample jointure. Now, what does jointure mean? Um, here the note says, a financial settlement made for a woman upon marriage to provide for her care after her to provide for her care after her husband's death. The amount usually depended upon the capital or property the woman brings to the marriage and commonly designed to descend to her surviving children. So she was a widow and she had money of her own, which was a very privileged position because it was provided for her after her husband's death in this jointure, right? So she could be whatever she wanted to be because she could, right? She had only two daughters, both of whom she lived to see respectably married. One of them is Lady Middleton. And she had now therefore nothing to do but to marry all the rest of the world. Like that was the goal of every woman at the time, right? To getting married. So after you do that, you've accomplished your life, your life goal. Okay, what can you do not to have a boring life? Marry others. So that's what Mrs. Jennings likes to do. She likes to make couples and to make matches and to get everyone else married and get everyone embarrassed in the in the in the process. In the promotion of this object, she was zealously active as far as her ability reached and missed no opportunity of projecting weddings among all the young people of her acquaintance. She was remarkably quick in the discovery of attachments and had enjoyed the advantage of raising the blushes and the vanity of many a young lady by insinuations of her power over such a young man. And this kind of discernment enabled her soon after her arrival at Barton decisively to pronounce that Colonel Brandon was very much in love with Marianne Dashwood. She rather suspected it to be so on the very first evening of their being together, from his listening so attentively while she sang to them. And when the visit was returned by the Middletons dining at the cottage, the fact was ascertained by his listening to her again. It must be so. She was perfectly convinced of it sarcasm again right it must be so he must be in love with her because he listened to her so attentively while she sang twice so she was convinced of it it could only be love right and then her mind is already racing it would be an excellent match for he was rich and she was handsome so you see how this is a third person narration but the character is not an objective impartial bystander observer. The, the narrator is now inside Mrs. Jennings' mind, and the language of the narrator reflects the thoughts in Mrs. Jennings' minds. You see how, how interestingly uh, Austin crafts her narrative. Um, so it would be an excellent match, for he was rich and she was handsome. Does the narrator think that? No, it's Mrs. Jennings who thinks that. Mrs. Jennings had been anxious to see Colonel Brandon well married ever since her connection with Sir John first brought him to her knowledge, and she was always anxious to get a good husband for every pretty girl. The immediate advantage to herself was by no means inconsiderable, for it supplied her with endless jokes against them both. 
and the park she left at the colonel and in the cottage at Marianne. To the former, her raillery was probably, as far as it regarded only himself, perfectly indifferent. But to the latter, it was at first incomprehensible. And when its object was understood, she hardly knew whether most to laugh at its absurdity or censor its impertinence, for she considered it as an unfeeling reflection on the colonel's advanced years and on his forlorn condition as an old bachelor. So Marianne doesn't even take this seriously because it's such an absurd idea that such an old man in advanced years and in his forlorn condition as an old bachelor that he would love a 17-year-old girl. It's ridiculous, she thinks. Mrs. Dashwood, who could not think a man five years younger than herself so exceedingly ancient as he appeared to the youthful fancy of her daughter, ventured to clear Mrs. Jennings from the probability of wishing to throw ridicule on his age. But at least, Mama, you cannot deny the absurdity of the accusation though you may not think it intentionally ill-natured. Colonel Brandon is certainly younger than Mrs. Jennings, but he is old enough to be my father, and if he were ever animated enough to be in love, must have long outlived every sensation of the kind. It is too ridiculous. When is a man to be safe from such wit if age and infirmity will not protect him? Another thing that Marianne thinks is that uh, Colonel Brandon, even though he's single, he's way past love age. No, he cannot feel that anymore. And he cannot have, he lo has long outlived every sensation of the kind. And it's very, um, it's bad <coughs> taste of Mrs. Jennings to be doing that to him, um, to take advantage and to ridicule his age and infirmity. Infirmity? said Eleanor. Do you call Colonel Brandon infirm? I can easily suppose that his age may appear much greater to you than to my mother, but you can hardly deceive yourself as to his having the use of his limbs. Did not you hear him complain of the rheumatism, and is not that the commonest infirmative of declining life? My dearest child, said her mother, laughing, at this rate you must be in continual terror of my decay, and it must seem to you a miracle that my life has been extended to the advanced age of 40. Mama, you are not doing me justice. I know very well that Colonel Brandon is not old enough to make his friends yet apprehensive of losing him in the course of nature. He may live 20 years longer, but 35 has nothing to do with matrimony. So you see the different um, opinions and perce age perceptions here. Um, Marianne, for her, Colonel Brandon, is extremely old, ancient, has way, way past love life, feeling any love. Um, but Eleanor and Mrs. Dashwood think differently, and they even joke, right? Mrs. Dashwood, I think it's so funny. She says, oh, my God, you must be terrified that I may drop dead at any minute since I'm 40, such an advanced age. And it's interesting to know that when this book was published in 1811, Jane Austen was 36 years old, although she wrote the first versions of this novel earlier. Um, but at this point in her life, when the book was published, Jane Austen herself was even older than Colin O'Brandon. <laughs> Perhaps, said Eleanor, 35 and 17 had better not 
Now, Eleanor is the sensible one, right? Perhaps 35 and 17 had better not have anything to do with matrimony together. But if there should be any chance happen to be a woman who is, by any chance happen to be a woman who is single at 7 and 20, I should not think Colonel Brandon's being 35 any objection to his marrying her. A woman of 7 and 20, said Marianne after pausing a moment, can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. And if her home be uncomfortable or her fortune small, I can suppose that she might bring herself to submit to the offices of a nurse for the sake of the provision and security of a wife. In his marrying such a woman, therefore, there would be nothing unsuitable. It would be a compact of convenience and the world would be satisfied. In my eyes, it would not be a marriage at all. But that will be nothing. To me, it would only seem a commercial exchange in which each wished to be benefited at the expense of the other. Now, this is very important. I even added um, a sticky note there because it says a lot about Marion's uh, character. So she's very harsh on thinking that a woman of 27 is past the age of falling in love, but that she could still get married, but then as a sort of convenience, because she would be playing the role, not of a wife necessarily, but of a nurse and would take care of her husband, who at 35 would be an ancient man. And in return, she would have the comfort and the security of a marriage. So she thinks it would be a commercial exchange, this a wedding at an older age. Um, so uh, here another comment. So to Marianne, feelings of love and longing for marriage have an expired day or rather age. Misha, yes, indeed. For her, um, love belongs to the young because she's so passionate and so exaggerated in her feelings that she believes that Older age cannot, um, does not match this kind of effusive feelings, right? So at an older age, you are controlled, you're subjected um, and past feeling these strong emotions. We'll see how that plays out along the novel, what she needs to learn to mature as a woman. Now, let's see what Eleanor replies to, date, to this. It would be impossible, I know replied Eleanor, to convince you that a woman of seven and twenty could feel for a man of thirty-five anything near enough to love to make him a desirable companion to her. But I must object to your dooming Colonel Brandon and his wife to the constant confinement of a sick chamber, merely because he chanced to complain yesterday, a very cold, damp day, of a slight rheumatic feel in one of his shoulders." sensible Eleanor. She's rationalizing. She's giving a, a, um, a reason why he was complaining of rheumatism. It was a very damp, cold day. I mean, it's not because of his old age. But he talked of flannel, flannel waistcoats, said Marianne. And with me, a flannel waistcoat, waistcoat is invariably connected with aches, cramps, rheumatisms, and every species of ailment that can afflict the old and the feeble. Had he been only in a violent fever, he would not have despised him half so much. Confess, Marianne, is not there something interesting to you in the flushed cheek, hollow eye, and quick pulse of a fever? Like, 
and romanticized description of an illness. Soon after this, upon Eleanor's leaving the room, Mama, said Marianne, I have an alarm on the subject of illness, which I cannot conceal from you. I am sure Edward Ferrers is not well. We have now been here almost a fortnight, and yet he does not come. Nothing but real indisposition could occasion this extraordinary delay. What else can detain him at Norland? Had you any idea of his coming so soon? said Mrs. Dashwood. I had none. On the contrary, if I have felt any anxiety at all on the subject, it has been in recollecting that he sometimes showed a want of pleasure and readiness in accepting my invitation when I talked of his coming to Barton. Does Eleanor expect him already? I have never mentioned it to her, but of course she must. I rather think you are mistaken, for when I was talking to her yesterday of getting a new grate for the spare bedchamber, she observed that, that there was no immediate hurry for it, as it was not likely that the room would be wanted for some time. How strange this is! What can be the meaning of it? But the whole of their behavior to each other has been unaccountable. How cold, how composed were their last adieu! How languid their conversation the last evening of them being together. In Edward's farewell, there was no distinction between Eleanor and me. It was the good wishes of an affectionate brother to both. Twice did I leave them purposely together in the course of the last morning, and each time did he most unaccountably follow me out of the room. And Eleanor, in quitting Norland and Edward, cried not as I did. Even now, her self-command is invariable. When is she dejected or melancholy? When does she try to avoid society or appear restless and dissatisfied in it? Dissatisfied in it. And that's the end of chapter eight. Um, so another, so the author here is um, exploring deeper the contrast between the two sisters. So Marianne cried when they left. Norland. He sought, she sought to avoid society, to appear restless and dissatisfied, so she shows her emotions. But Edward Ferris has not come to visit, and Eleanor is just the same. She doesn't seem sad. She hasn't cried. What's wrong with her? What's wrong with all of this? Marianne doesn't understand. So this chapter is very interesting because we see the difference, the different perspectives of Marianne and Eleanor on Colonel Brandon and on marrying at an old age, which is quite, quite interesting. For Marianne, love only exists for the young, passionate and energetic. In old age, love, or rather marriage, is just a convenience without the possibility of real affection, right? That's what we find out in this chapter. Now, chapter nine is very interesting. I really like this, um, this chapter, and it's very much related to the quote I read earlier. I'm going to read it again to you. So the quote from Northanger Abbey, this is the quote. When a young lady is to be a heroine, the perverseness of 40 surrounding families cannot prevent her. Something must and will happen to throw a hero in her way. Remember what, what Marianne wants for her love life? She wants someone just like her, just as passionate, just as young. And that sounds very um, unattainable. And her mother and her sister know that. 
But let's see what happens in chapter nine. The Dashwoods were now settled at Barton with tolerable comfort to themselves. The house and the garden with all the objects surrounding them were now become familiar and the ordinary pursuits which had given to Norland half its charms were engaged in again with far greater enjoyment than Norland had been able to afford since the loss, the loss of their father. Sir John Middleton, who called on them every day for the first fortnight, and who was not in the habit of seeing much occupation at home, could not conceal his amazement of finding them always employed. Their visitors, except those from Barton Park, were not many. For, in spite of Sir John's urgent entreaties that they would mix more in the neighbourhood, and repeated assurances of his carriage being always at their service, the independence of Mrs. Dashwood's spirit overcame the wish of society for her children. And she was resolute in declining to visit any family beyond the distance of a walk. There were but few who could be so classed, and it was not all of them that were attainable. About a mile and a half from the cottage, along the narrow winding valley of Allenham, which issued from that of Barton, as formerly described, the girls had, in one of their earliest walks, discovered an ancient, respectable-looking mansion, which, by reminding them a little of Norland, interested their imagination and made them wish to be better acquainted with it. But they learned on inquiry that its possessor, an elderly lady of very good character, was unfortunately too infirm to mix with the world and never stirred from home. The whole country abound, about them abounded in beautiful walks. Walking was a very um, um, liked uh, pastime for young girls at that, not only young girls, for everyone at that time. Walking and enjoying especially the good weather because England, uh, the weather in England is not sunny all the time. So when it is, they would enjoy spending time outside and walking. And remember, they are surrounded by beautiful and picturesque nature. The high downs which invited them from almost every window of the cottage to seek the exquisite enjoyment of air on their summits were a happy alternative when the dirt of the valleys beneath shut up their superior beauties. And towards one of these hills did Marianne and Margaret one memorable morning direct their steps. Attracted by the partial sunshine of a showery sky and unable longer to bear the confinement which the settled rain of the two preceding days had occasioned. Margaret and Marianne cannot be contained within the house. They are free spirits. They need to go outdoors. The weather was not tempting enough to draw the two others from their pencil and their book, in spite of Marianne's declaration that the day would be lastingly fair and that every threatening cloud would be drawn off from their hills, and the two girls set off together. Free spirits set off outside, outdoors, but um, Eleanor and her mother, no, no, they stayed inside. So another contrast, Marianne prefers being outdoors whereas Eleanor prefers, she's contained, so she prefers the safe place of the domestic home. 
They gaily ascended the downs, rejoicing in their own penetration at every glimpse of blue sky. And when they caught in their faces the animating gales of an high southwesterly wind, they pitied the fears which had prevented their mother and Eleanor from sharing such delightful sensations. Is there a felicity in the world, said Marian, superior to this? Margaret, we will walk here at least two hours. Margaret agreed, and they pursued their way against the wind, resisting it with laughing delight for about twenty minutes longer, when suddenly the clouds united over their heads and a driving rain set full in their face. So Marianne was enjoying the wind because the wind is wild, just like her, just like her spirit. So there's, she said, is there any, um, what did she say? Is there a felicity in the world superior to this, to being free, to being outside, to being in this wind? But suddenly it started to rain, very heavy rain. Chagrined and surprised, they were obliged, though unwillingly, to turn back, for no shelter was nearer than their own house. One consolation, however, remained for them, to which the exigence of the moment gave more than usual propriety. It was that of running with all possible speed down the steep side of the hill, which led immediately to their garden state. They set off. So usually, usual propriety would tell them to walk as a lady should walk. But as it was raining and they were seeking shelter, they could take advantage of that and run wildly down, gathering speed. Running is also... Um, a way to explore liberty and freedom and against social norms. So they ran down. Marianne had at first the advantage, but a false step brought her suddenly to the ground. And Margaret, unable to stop herself to assist her, was involuntarily hurried along and reached the bottom in safety. A gentleman carrying a gun with two pointers playing around him, was passing up the hill and within a few yards of Marianne when her accident happened. A gentleman carrying a gun. So always this very uh, masculine trait of, um, of a man carrying a gun. So a hunter with two pointers. So um, very stereotypical, um, let's say, Byronian hero, like a gothic character. He put down his gun and ran to her assistance. She had raised herself from the ground, but her foot had been twisted in the fall and she was scarcely able to stand. The gentleman offered his services and perceiving that her modesty declined what her situation rendered necessary, took her up in his arms without farther delay and carried her down the hill. Then passing through the garden, the gate of which had been left open by Margaret, he bore her directly into the house whither Margaret was just arrived and quitted not his hold till he had seated her in a chair in the parlor. Eleanor and her mother rose up in amazement at their entrance, and while the eyes of both were fixed on him with an evident wonder and a secret admiration, which equally sprung from his appearance, he apologized for his intrusion by relating its cause, in a manner so frank and so graceful that his person, which was uncommonly handsome, received additional charms from his voice and expression. Had he been even old, ugly, and vulgar, the gratitude and kindness of Mrs. Dashwood would have been secured by any act of attention to her child, 
but the influence of youth, beauty, and elegance gave an interest to the action which came home to her feelings. So look at how this man is being described. So first of all, he appears with a gun, very masculine. He's hunting, right? If he's with a gun and two pointers, two dogs, he's hunting. Um, amazement, secret admiration, uncommonly handsome, charms, youth, beauty, elegance. What a mysterious man. She thanked him again and again, and with a sweetness of address which always attended her, invited him to be seated. But this he declined as he was dirty and wet. Mrs. Dashwood then begged to know to whom she was obliged. His name, he replied, was Willoughby, and his present home was at Ellingham, from whence he hoped she would allow him the honor of calling tomorrow to inquire after Miss Dashwood. Ellingham uh, is the house that they had been um, very curious about, the mansion surrounded by trees that reminded them of their own home and where an old lady um, lived. So this mysterious Willoughby comes from there. The honor was readily granted, and he then departed to make himself still more interesting in the midst of a heavy rain. So he comes, he saves her, he comes, he's very polite, he's charming, very beautiful, hand, uh, uncommonly handsome, and he's staying at this house that they thought was uh, empty except for that old lady, and he says he will come back tomorrow, and he leaves in the midst of a heavy rain. So how mysterious, what a romantic, mysterious encounter. Now let's see how Willoughby is described. His manly beauty and more than common gracefulness were instantly the theme of general admiration, and the laugh which his gallantry raised against Marian received particular spirit from his exterior attractions. Marian herself had seen less of his person than the rest, for the confusion which crimsoned over her face on his lifting her up had robbed her of the power of regarding him after their entering the house. But she had seen enough of him to join in all the admiration of the others, and with an energy which always adorned her praise. Now this is important. His person and air were equal to what her fancy had ever drawn for the hero of a favorite story. And in his carrying her into the house with so little previous formality, there was a rapidity of thought which particularly recommended the action to her. Every circumstance belonging to him was interesting. His name was good, his residence was in their favorite village, and she soon found out that of all manly dresses, a shooting jacket was the most becoming. Her imagination was busy, her reflections were pleasant, and the pain of a sprained ankle was disregarded. The hero, so he had everything, all the characteristics that she had always imagined the hero of her favorite story would look like. So look at the words here. Hero, favorite story, fancy, imagination, interesting. So her mind is racing. And um, imagination and fancy are the opposite of reality, right? So... Marianne wanted to feel like she was the protagonist of her story, like Catherine Morland in Northanger Abbey, another very interesting story. So they want to be inside a, a romance novel, and now Marianne thinks, oh, it's finally happening to me. And her imagination helps, of course. 
Sir John called on them as soon as the next interval of fair weather that morning allowed him to get out of doors. In Marianne's accident being related to him, he was eagerly asked whether he knew any gentleman of the name of Willoughby at Ellenham. Willoughby, cried Sir John, what is he in the country? That is good news, however. I will ride over tomorrow and ask him to dinner on Thursday. You know him then, said Mrs. Dashwood. Know him, to be sure I do. Why, he's down here every year. And what sort of a young man is he? As good a kind of fellow as ever lived, I assure you. A very decent shot, and there is not a bolder rider in England. And is that all you can say for him? cried Marianne indignantly. But what are his manners on more intimate acquaintance? What his pursuits, his talents and genius? So this is what she wants to know. She doesn't care if he is uh, a decent shot and a bold writer. She wants to know about his talents, his manners, his genius. Sir John was rather puzzled. Upon my soul, said he, I do not know much about him as to all that. But he is a pleasant, good-humored fellow and has got the nicest little black beach of a pointer I ever saw. Was she out with him today? But Marianne could no more satisfy him as to the color of Mr. Willoughby's pointer than he could describe to her the shades of his mind. So this is very interesting how the two are contrasted. What Sir John Middleton thinks it's important, the color of the dog, for instance, and what Marianne thinks it's important, how to describe the shades of Willoughby's mind. But who is he? said Eleanor. Where does he come from? The sensible, practical Eleanor. Has he a house at Ellenham? On this point, Sir John could give more certain intelligence, and he told them that Mr. Willoughby had no property of his own in the country, that he resided there only while he was visiting the old lady at Ellenham Court, to whom he was related, and whose possessions he was to inherit. Adding, yes, yes, he's very well worth catching, I can tell you, Miss Dashwood, he has a pretty little state of his own in Somersetshire. Besides, if I were you, I would not give him up to my younger sister in spite of all this tumbling down hills. Miss Marianne must not expect to have all the men to herself. Brandon will be jealous if she does not take care. A parenthesis here is you may have noticed that Sir John refers to Eleanor as Miss Dashwood and the surname and to Marianne as Miss Marianne. So the oldest daughter would be allowed title miss and last name so miss dashwood means the oldest sister and then the other girls would be um given the title miss plus their first name so miss margaret and miss marion but when willoughby first came to the house he didn't know who was the oldest so he in fact he referred to marianne as miss dashwood but she is not I do not believe, said Mrs. Dashwood with a good-humoured smile, that Mr. Willoughby will be incommoded by the attempts of either of my daughters towards what you call catching him. It is not an employment to which they have been brought up. Men are very safe with us. Let them be ever so rich. I am glad to find, however, from what you say, that he is a respectable young man and one whose acquaintance will not be ineligible." So Mrs. Dashwood protecting her daughters and saying that they don't care about the money or catching a good um, man, like a good, uh, a good suitor. Uh, 
what matters to him, to her is that he is a respectable young man, and apparently he is. He is as good a sort of fellow, I believe, as ever lived, repeated Sir John. I remember last Christmas, at a little hop at the park, he danced from eight o'clock till four without once sitting down. Did he indeed? cried Marian, with sparkling eyes. And with elegance? And with spirit? So now that matters to her. She doesn't care about the color of his dog, but the fact that he danced without sitting down for a minute from eight o'clock till four, it means he has energy, he has figure, he's young. That res resonates with Marian. Yes, and he was up again at eight to ride to covert. That is what I like. That is what a young man ought to be. Whatever be his pursuits, his eagerness in them should know no moderation and leave him no sense of fatigue. Aye, aye, I see how it will be, said Sir John. I see how it will be. You will be setting your cap at him now and never think of poor Brandon. That is an expression, Sir John, said Marian warmly, which I particularly dislike. I abhor every commonplace phrase by which wit is intended, and setting one's cap at a man or making a conquest are the most odious of all. Their tendency is gross and illiberal, and if their construction could ever be deemed clever, time has long ago destroyed all its ingenuity. I love this, this... Um... Uh, speech by Marianne. She abhors phrases such as catching a man, making a conquest, or setting one's cap at a man. Sir John did not much understand this reproof, but he laughed as heartily as if he did, and then replied, Ay, ay, you will make conquests enough, I dare say, one way or other. Poor Brendan, he is quite smitten already, and he is very well worth setting your cap at, I can tell you, in spite of all this tumbling about and spraining of ankles. And that's the end of chapter 9. So this chapter is important. It was a memorable day for Marianne because she seems to have found someone that is her equal in spirit, in energy, in sensibility. Her eyes are sparkling with fancy imagination. She thinks that she's finally started her own novel. She's, she can finally be the protagonist of her own story. She feels as the heroine in a romance novel. And we'll see how that will play out in the upcoming chapters. So let me know what you thought, what you think, what you've thought of the chapters we've read today. Um, and if anything caught your attention, Jenny says she's in love already. She's already smitten and more with the, she doesn't even know him, right? So she's more in love with the idea with the image she has created for him already than the reality, right? So the fact that he's mysterious, he's charming, that he seems to be the hero of, um, of a novel of romance already makes her, her imagination go wild. So we talked about, in this session, we talked about the move to Barton Cottage in Devonshire, making it a comfortable home, settling in, uh, we were introduced to Sir John Middleton, Lady Middleton, Mrs. Jennings, who is Lady Middleton's mom, and Colonel Brandon. 
um, we learned about Mrs. Jennings' matchmaking skills and how she's trying to put together uh, Marianne and Colonel Brandon, but she thinks it's such a ridiculous idea because he's such an ancient man. Um, the accident when Marianne ran down the hill and that uh, introduction of the mysterious and charming Willoughby who catches Marianne's attention as a kindred figurous and youthful spirit. Uh, Anka says, Willoughby brings fireworks into Marianne's life, but marriage requires a fireplace. Well, that's a very interesting image, isn't it? Yes. Um, and perhaps she will learn that eventually. But for now, she's very happy to finally be feeling that um, those strong emotions that she had read about in novels, perhaps, but she hadn't felt them herself. Um uh, Jenny says, Jane Austen's stories are a lot more witty than I had realized. Yes, yeah, especially if you contrast what goes on in the characters' minds with the narrator's own voice, which is much more acid and sarcastic and kind of judgmental. Michelle says, long but lovely session today. See you next week. Yes, it's always long. Um, so what I can recommend is that if you feel like it's too much, um, you can always pause and then continue the session another day as you will be able to um to watch the recordings in 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 the channel right so next time february 23rd a week from now we're going to read chapters 10 to 13 let me know if you have any specific questions and it was lovely talking to you about jane austen today i hope you enjoyed it and i will see you next week Bye-bye. So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this third session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents and podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, we'll read and discuss chapters 10 to 13. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature. Remember, you can find me on Instagram at books.and.culture. For ideas for future episodes or comments, you can send me an email at hello at booksandculture.club. See you next time.